Hey listeners, welcome to the second episode of Unfeigned Christianity, where we have raw conversations about issues that test the genuineness of our faith. Today, my guest is Trudy Metzger. The topic is sexual abuse. Trudy Metzger is the blogger that came out revealing the sexual abuse that was going on with a cam worker in Haiti back in 2012-2013. We're not going to talk so much about that case. The The point of this episode is to discuss what it's like for a sexual abuse victim and the struggles they face and how we as a church can become a safe place for them and what, what victims need from their pastors and what does restorative justice look like when the victim and perpetrator are in the same church. I am excited about this conversation that I had with Trudy and A month ago, when I started writing about the case going on in Haiti, I got some replies from people who were concerned about Trudy Metzger. She's not conservative Mennonite anymore. Some people felt she had a vendetta against conservative Anabaptists. And I want you to set whatever preconceived ideas you have about Trudy. Just set them aside for now and listen to the conversation. I think you'll discover that Trudy is a very humble, very down-to-earth person who cares about victim, who cares about justice. And things like sexual abuse, we've got to care about that as a church and we've got to take it seriously. And so maybe even if it's a little uncomfortable for us to talk about it, I think it's important, it's imperative that we begin talking about it. Before we get going, I just want to remind you that if you want to delve in further into your own journey and making sense of life, maybe maybe you have wrestled with hurts and pains in your own past. Uh, maybe you're looking at the church and you, you wrestle with the state that it's in. Why? How have we gotten here? I have a course on my blog. It's called the Making Sense of Life Journey, and you can join that course for $25 a month. And we walk through the divine narratives that God is working out in this life, in this story. You can join for $5 a month. You don't get the full access to the course. But if you want to begin taking that journey, you can start at just $5 a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash Asher Whitmer and you can discover the different levels of that course that you can start with today. And now for my conversation with Trudy Metzger. All right. Well, thank you. We have Trudy Metzger here with us today, this week on the podcast. I uh, got to know Trudy for the first time via the internet um, about a month ago, I guess. Today is the 12th of July. I think it was about the 10th of June. You came out with an article um, revealing some sexual abuse that was going on in Haiti with a cam, a former cam worker and and the cover-up that was involved with that, and and you've had many articles since then, and it's become a a huge discussion in the conservative Anabaptist world, at least. And I'm excited to have you on the show today, Trudy, to discuss um, specifically sexual abuse in the church and how we can care for victims, how we can create an environment that's safe for them, what what it looks like to bring restorative justice to perpetrators. Um, but why don't we start by you just sharing a little bit of your own story? How, how do 
you get involved in this type of work? So, yeah, it did start with my own story. Um, obviously, I didn't expect as a child when I was going through a lot of difficult times and trauma that I would one day be doing this. You, you kind of live through your difficulties and hell, I guess you could say. And, mm. and you don't really see the redemption. You don't see that there's hope that there's, you know, that God is actually going to use this. So for me, my childhood was uh, deeply traumatizing. My father was very abusive. Um, well, there was a lot of abuse in our community, not just my father, in our home. My mother was as well. She's still living. And one of the things I've tried to do with my father is I waited till he was gone to really talk about what our home was, partly just to respect him. And it was just back then we didn't talk so much about, you know, what life was. It mm. was not mm. common to speak out. So I've tried to give my mother that same honor, mm. but I also don't run away from it. So this is the most public I'm ever going to talk about a bit of that. Wow. My uh, my mother was very emotionally absent and abusive at the same time um there was a lot of uh, darkness a lot of name calling a lot of um you know not really knowing where you fit in the home not knowing who you are uh, that kind of thing for my mom mm. there's more but it's not my story to tell but that was my mm. experience with my mom with dad <clears throat> pardon me with dad there was a lot of violence so he would threaten us with well, he would threaten to commit suicide. He would threaten to kill us as a family if something didn't suit him. If his life was not good, then we would go through that kind of trauma. And there was also a lot of sexual violence in our home. There was, my father was a child molester without question. He started mm. molesting when he was about 13 years old. Oh, wow. That's the first that I know of. Mm. Although he would have said to uh, my mom that by age five, he was very sexually aware and had this sex drive. That doesn't, that's just not normal. So it tells you there's a story. But he never did talk to us children about those early years and the sexual abuse that he most likely would have experienced given that he was, you know, dealing with that. So this played out in our home in a lot of violence towards us children, towards my mom. That was just our normal. There was sibling to sibling abuse. There was neighbors abusing some of my siblings. Um, there was neighbors abusing me. So there was a lot of a lot of abuse there, sexual abuse from many sources. For me, most of the abuse actually came from females. Hmm. So I, I was molested uh, by hmm. males as well, but it, a lot of it came from females. So there was just a lot of confusion in my life. Hmm. Now, about ten years ago, uh, I started working with. Well, I actually started doing conferences um, in 2010. I planned a conference. And it wasn't targeted towards the Mennonite people at all. It was just me going, this is a bigger problem than I ever realized. Mm -hmm. I was aware of sexual abuse uh, growing up, obviously from experience, but I didn't realize that it was in our family. I, I wasn't consciously really processing that this was bigger than my story. Mm -hmm. So at age 21, uh, 21 around there, I started working through the abuse that I had suffered and started, you know, I'd share a little bit with a friend and then people would start talking to me, friends would start talking to me. And I soon discovered that it isn't just my family. It's not just me. This is a bigger problem. Hmm. Wow. And so, yeah, so that really opened my eyes to the need. But it wasn't until 10 years ago when I said, you know, this is actually a bigger problem and we need to talk about it. So I did a conference in a missionary church. It was a church we attended at the time. And uh, quite a lot of Mennonite people came. At the end of that conference, um, I had a friend that was helping me with it. And at the end of the conference, she asked me if I'm targeting, like, are you planning to work with the Mennonite community? Is this your, 
you know, target audience. And I was like, no, I, I just couldn't imagine that the um, that my Anabaptist heritage would accept me because I had left. And so that was certainly not my plan or on my radar at all. Mm-hmm. At that time, we only did like that one conference that year. We did, I think, two in 2011, one in Canton, Ohio, and one in Ontario. And by 2012, I think we did two or three. So we weren't doing a lot, but at all of those conferences. So Canton, Ohio, for example, was, um, it was certainly not, I think it was a, a community church, certainly not a Mennonite church, but Mennonites okay. came from Virginia and Pennsylvania and Ohio. And so, again, they were coming and it was like my story resonated with them and they were really reaching for somebody to hear them. Mm-hmm. Also, starting with that first conference, what happened is that women would message me or call me and say, hey, do you have like an afternoon or could we meet for coffee? And then I started just kind of sitting with them and listening to their stories and encouraging them. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't planning to go into this full time. This was kind of going to be that little thing I do on the side, you know, a couple of conferences a year. And mm-hmm. when the calls started coming and just more and more and more started coming, I left my job in 2012 to do full time ministry with victims and I would just sit with them and mm-hmm. and partway through 2012 is when we started charging a small fee um it, we were so my husband and I were funding well my husband was funding the ministry because mm-hmm. you know I wasn't making any money doing it mm-hmm. and so at that point we started charging a small fee um so that we could I could keep doing this full time um and, and that's really what got me going you know, to, to doing it full-time, actually, from 2012 to 2016, mm-hmm. full-time, mm-hmm. I sat with victims of abuse. That was all the work I did besides um, doing these conferences. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it very much kind of happened. It developed. Um, mm-hmm. People ask, how do, how do I get into it? And I say, just take the next step. Just do the next step that God calls yeah. you to do. And so that's how I got to be doing what I do today. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing. that. You, you alluded to it. I forget if you mentioned it specifically, but you come from... Um, Mennonite, fairly conservative Mennonite background. You mm-hmm. were, you were in Klangi Kamini. I don't know if I said that right. Um, R- Russian Mennonite <laughs> background. Is that correct? Is that the background you come from? So I was born into the old colony church. Old colony. Okay. Um, but but I was nine months old when my parents left that. So I didn't really remember the the old colony church in Mexico at all. By the way, I was born in Mexico. Okay. And so there we were old colony. But at nine months old, my parents left for the Kleinigamide church. I do have memories of that church. I remember several funerals and several weddings and, and that kind of thing. But I don't remember going to church. I don't think we children went a lot. Oh, okay. um, that, I just don't remember it. Then when we moved to Canada when I was five, we went back to the old colony church. Oh, okay. My okay. parents did. And we never went to church there. On occasion, we'd visit other churches. Um, okay. But... By age nine, going on ten, we met the what we called the Mennonites with the little white caps. That's oh, okay. just our family identified them, yeah. and and we started going to their church when I was nine, going on ten. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I I just bring that up to to emphasize that your story was happening in that setting, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. My my dad is a pastor of a conservative Anabaptist church. When I was born. Um, in 91, we would have been a part of Midwest Fellowship. And, oh, maybe 97, I think, we left that and became just a non-denominational, but still very conservative Anabaptist flavor and nature. And I remember sometime, 
I don't know how long ago. This is 2019. I don't know if it was 15 years ago. I remember dad and mom making the comment that, well, they we were listening to like a focus on the family interview or something. And somebody made the, recited the statistic that one in three women are sexually abused. And dad and mom just made the comment that that's true even in the churches they've pastored. And that was kind of my first awakening to this type of thing. This is not my story. I, I personally have not been sexually abused. Um, I don't know anybody close to me who has. And so I'm not, like, I don't get into this discussion with the same heart and um, burden as I would a guy struggling with pornography. That's something that I have gone through and, and found freedom from. But because of that statement, because of things that I've heard my my pastor parents talk about and because of since blogging and, and hearing people's stories coming back to me, I know that's a very real thing in our communities. And so I just, yeah, thank you for your work. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing with us. Um, I just wanted to, you referenced how you were molested by women and how that caused a lot of conflict within you would you mind sharing just a little bit what what the struggle is that goes on in a victim, whether they're molested by somebody of the opposite gender or not? Um, but the the questioning and the the deep internal struggles about your own sexuality, your own who you are. Do you want to share with my audience what that struggle kind of looks like? Sure. Now I've never talked publicly about this before, but I'm. Happy. Uh, yeah, just, I it just. <laughs> If, it, if, it, if I ask anything that's too uncomfortable, just let me know. That's fine. No, I'm good. I'm good. I did allude to it a little bit in my book, okay. uh, but I don't go into great depth because it's a memoir. It's not a teaching book. Yeah. What, um, what's, but, the, what's the name of that book, by the way? Between Two Gods, a memoir of abuse in the Mennonite community. Okay. Between Two Gods. So I tell it in story form and it's very, I just kind of hint at it without actually ever really you know, getting into it, but very mm. much uh, for me, two things. I remember as young as age four, approximately, because it was back in Mexico and it wasn't like it was before we, a uh, while before we moved. So I'd have been probably around age four. I remember wishing I was a boy. Hmm. I remember that struggle really began. There was something about males that they had power. I felt helpless and I felt weak compared to them. And so I really struggled with wishing I was a boy. That stayed with me. Um, I never really wanted to be a girl. Uh, that kind of stayed with me for sure into my late teens in various forms, but predominantly between age four and I would say about age 13. That mm. was the strongest in those years, about that nine year stretch off and on. That mm. would be something I would just really struggle with. And I would actually say to God, like, you made me a girl. So you're God. You can do anything. Why can't you still make me into a boy, even though I'm now, you know, however old I was? And I couldn't understand why he wouldn't just honor that so that I could grow up to be, you know, stronger and and all of that, everything that goes mm. with being male. Um, and so that was a huge part of my struggle. And even as a little Mennonite girl, I would sneak into my brother's room. We were, he was a bit taller than me, but we were you know, close enough to the same size. I'm just going to his room and put his pants on his clothes. And I would, I would like mm. think like, why can't I be this person? So that was very much my struggle mm. at that point. Um, and the struggle really left somewhere in my teens. I don't know exactly when it's not that it never came back at all. 
But somewhere in there, I came to terms with my sexuality, who I am. I still really hated my body. I really hated the female body a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stayed with me into my early 20s. And I will never forget sitting with the deacon's wife of our Midwest church, where we were members, where I was a member. I didn't know my husband yet at that time. Okay. But sitting with her and, and expressing this to her and just saying, you know, I really don't like how God made women. I think we're really ugly. I think our bodies are quite horrible. And I didn't quite know what to do with that. But somehow I found the courage to say that to her. And she just kind of grinned. And she said, well, someday I expect your husband will disagree with you. Something to that effect. And and she just like, she didn't make a big deal of it. She didn't scold me. There was like, no, it was just like, it was yeah. normal conversation, which was a huge gift for me. Wow. And that I just couldn't imagine. But yeah. I mean, here was a married woman telling me this. And it kind of was like, oh, okay. So, you know, a husband won't find me repulsive. And I huh. didn't connect the dots to the fact that I had been molested by females mm. and and that my view of the female body was very negative because mm. of that, that I associated. That took me a lot of years to kind of piece that together. Mm. I would say that's only happened in the last maybe 15 years mm. or less by the oh, time wow. I pieced that together and went, wow, yeah, that makes sense that I really kind of hated the female body. Yeah. Now, the male body, um, it, it's not that that was much more appealing in some ways. I mean, I went through the normal sexual struggles that many victims go through and mm. uh, even non-victims. So it was, it was conflicted, mm. but at least it felt like the males had more protection. Mm. I don't know that I could have put that into those words, but I do remember very distinctly that feeling of, of they have power. They have something that I wish I could have. Mm. So the, in a nutshell, that's how I would put it yeah. into words first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. When you when you talk about males having more protection, you're specifically referring to the the power they had the power to protect themselves or or what? Yes, um, and they yeah. carry this. So my my perception back then would have been that they carry this weapon. I mean, God gave mm. them this weapon. Mm. Now, being you know older and more experienced and I hope wiser, I recognize that that's not actually how it works. I know that many yeah. males are victimized by females and by other males. So I, I realize mm. now that that was not even legitimate, but that's what I perceived. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely what I perceived. Yeah. And so you, you referenced the, the gift of conversation with that that deacon, deacon's or bishop's wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, deacon's wife. Deacon's wife. Talk about that a little bit too. Like the, So as someone's struggling with these things internally, if they do leak it out, to somebody in their church or just a friend or whoever, what, how do you respond? You know, um, what are typical responses that people get when they express something like you did or, or even just start, even if they were to say that they've been molested, like how do, what is an, a common response that you hear of victims getting um, and how, what is a gift like you got? Just, yeah. So I'll talk about the gift that I got and the typical response and then what the response should be. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So I had a huge advantage when I first started speaking out, even amongst my own family. So I come from a family of 16 kids. And at the time oh. when I spoke up, not one had spoken out. Like I just thought I was the only one of 16. And mm. I always felt very different in my own family, I was the only one with blonde hair and blue eyes. And hmm. I was more outgoing and, and, you know, a bit of a loose cannon and all that. I felt very different and actually thought I was adopted. 
So when I, even with the abuse, I thought I was the only one and, and I just felt very marked. But when I told my brother, like he was, it was a, a brother next older to me. When I first talked to him about it, he was quite shocked and didn't, not because he wasn't aware of abuse. I won't tell his story for him, but yeah. he's quite shocked at what I came forward with. Hmm. And he suggested I talk to my oldest brother um, from my, so we're a split family. My dad had four kids when he married my mom. Oh, okay. His wife and youngest son had died and he had four kids. Uh So my oldest full-blooded brother was very much part of my life. And so he suggested I speak with him. Well, there was none of this. I don't believe you. You're making it up. I never went through that. Hmm. I was supported. Hmm. Um, He felt unless I could, you know, bring very specific, you know, almost time and location, but very specific details, I I shouldn't speak about it uh, to like I shouldn't confront it. That was his solution, and that was fine. I understood where he was coming from. And my concern was, we go talk to Dad. I said, can we go talk to Dad, because he needs to repent. That was mm-hmm. my only concern at that point. Mm-hmm. That Dad needs to repent, because he cannot carry this this violence and secret to the grave. And so um, he, he wasn't comfortable doing that without me being able to give more of the... I had memories, but there wasn't enough memories there to really um, confront Dad with at that time. So... Mm-hmm. In spite of that, I was believed. Now, later on, it would come to light that there were other victims. But at that point, and for the next two years, I was the only victim in my family. Nobody spoke out um, until uh, two years later. I received that same kind of support in church. when. um, So I was in this Midwest church. I had never spoken with anybody about the abuse. Mm -hmm. So this would have been before I spoke to my brother. And a friend of mine had been molested, and she saw all these symptoms in me. And went to her parents and were, she was like, can you reach out to Trudy? She needs help. Hmm. And what people don't know, in fact, I don't know if anybody knows this. At the time, my body was actually starting to really shut down because of all the trauma. Hmm. So I hadn't spoken with anybody, but I would find myself just crying all the time. I was cold all the time. Like I'm living with this older gentleman taking care of him, doing in-home care. And I would crank the heat so high that when his son came, his son's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just really cold and I wasn't feeling well. Everything, it was stress. It was anxiety. So this thing was building up in my body. Well, this friend was seeing this and she's like, something happened to Trudy. Her parents came to me and actually flat out asked me if I had been abused. That is what opened the whole story. So not only was I not believed, somebody actually took the time to pursue me and say, we see something here. Can we talk about it? Mm-hmm. And they stuck with me. I ended up living with that family for almost two years, and mm-hmm. they were just there for me. They were incredibly respectful. Um, never did I feel like my boundaries were crossed by the dad, by the brother. This They were all just so respectful, and it gave me this safe place to heal. Mm-hmm. You don't get much more ideal response than that. Mm-hmm. And eventually, even my own family, who had not spoken, you know, started to come out and saying, you know what? This did happen to me too, and here's my story. So it took a while, but I had that support from day one. That was an incredible gift that I didn't realize. And I I healed so quickly in many ways. I mean, I still have scars. I'm human. Mm -hmm. There's things that will trigger me, not very often anymore, Um, especially Mm -hmm. the sexual abuse. It doesn't get triggered very easily, but I attribute it to that response. And maybe Mm -hmm. I'll just jump in here and talk about the ideal response because it kind of, I think, will go better. And then I'll talk about what is the common response. So... Uh, that whole thing of leaning in and listening, that family that took me in, um, it doesn't always work well to take somebody in that's troubled. Mm. And to be to be honest, they paid a huge price. Yeah. 
as a couple, they paid a huge price for what they gave me as a gift. I really, I had no idea at the time. I was oblivious in my own pain, but I stretched their marriage and their home in places that you can't possibly imagine. So it's a huge undertaking, and it's not always ideal. I'm thankful. I'm incredibly thankful for the gift they gave me, but it's not always ideal. Sometimes it's better, um, you know, to have consistent times. So the first gift is listening. When somebody comes to you and says, here's my story, you know what, the abuser might be your pastor, it might be their father, their pastor, your pastor, it might be an uncle, it might be somebody you don't know. Mm-hmm. Regardless of who that person is, even if your strongest instinct is to say, there's no way this is possible because he's such a good leader or he's such a good you know, Sunday school teacher or school teacher or whatever, mm-hmm. lean in and listen and just hear their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first really huge gift to give and do so without judgment. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Listen, keep it to yourself. Don't spread it. And don't judge them. Don't the judge. Don't, don't judge. Don't judge the victim. The victim. Yeah. It's, I'll get to the common response of judgment, but it, don't mm. judge the victim. Just listen. Their mm. details may not be 100% accurate. The mm. truth is, if you, if you have an event and you write down your memory of it and then put it in a time capsule and you do this with a friend and you're both there, you have the exact same story. And you go back to that time camp capsule, and this was actually done as a, an experiment. Okay. You go back and you write it again. I think it's five years later. You write about that event and compare it with the time capsule. Neither one's going to be 100% accurate. Mm. Mm. But the basic story is going to be there. Mm-hmm. So they may not have every detail exactly perfect. They might say they were 13. They might have been 9. They might say they were 9 and they were 14. The offenders will do the exact same thing. So don't judge the victim's story. Just mm. listen. Mm-hmm. And don't assume that every little detail is 100%, you know, accurate. Yeah. The story probably is true, but mm-hmm. the details maybe may fluctuate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the basics, so it's really important to listen without judgment. Mm-hmm. And then the confidentiality, give them, give them confidentiality. Don't spread it. If you, if it's more than you can handle, because one of the things that I see quite a lot is young people who are troubled go to young people who are maybe not troubled, but very young and don't have resources Ask the person for permission to invite somebody else in because you can't carry it alone. It'll push people to secondary trauma. If you're always listening to this trauma and you have no place to go with it and nothing is happening to support this person, you're going to end up in a place of trauma. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be you know, living out of that yourself. And so it's really important to, as a listener to also have healthy boundaries. I encourage people, don't give a victim more than two and a half hours Again, no, no, you know, stiff rule here, but don't give them more than an, more than an hour and a half, maximum two and a half, depending on situation. But even that is too much. It's too much to absorb at once. You'll find yourself getting stressed. You'll find yourself developing um, what we call uh, secondary trauma or uh, there's another word for it that escapes me at the moment, compassion compassion fatigue, Hmm. so that you will actually start to resent the person who is now putting their trauma on you. Right. So then you become the victim of their story you you Mm. don't hate them you just can't handle it so Mm. for those reasons it's ideal to meet once a week for an hour and a half Mm. talk about it and any other time that you're together that topic's off bounds so that you know i'm that you're going to be emotionally prepared to sit and listen at that time and you're not going to be constantly blindsided Mm -hmm. so that's been one of the things that's allowed me to keep doing what i do is that i have a very restricted time that i sit with victims and and if I go too much over that, it becomes very exhausting. So yeah. in 
now after years of experience. That's it's an important piece. Yeah. So listen without judgment. Have a, a specific you know time or have healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the tragedies of being victimized is that all your boundaries have been violated. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how to manage your your pain and your, and your world, and, and it just invades your whole life. And that person invaded your whole life. And so you live out of that often with a lack of boundaries and you just like throw yourself into somebody's world, not because you're evil, not because you're mean, but because you're desperate. And so one of the ways to help victims develop healthy boundaries is to have healthy boundaries. Say, Mm -hmm. I'm worth it and you're worth it. Mm -hmm. And also that gives them, you know, several days in between of being able to, you know, walk on their own, trying to have the strength to to do that. There's exceptions to every rule. So yeah. those are not, you know, strict rules. Sometimes it, twice a week is necessary. And, and if you're not, um, if you're talking deep, deep trauma and you're just not experienced or skilled, help them find somebody to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be afraid to bring in a counselor. Mm-hmm. Contrary to popular belief in religious communities, any professional counselor who's worth their salt is not going to try to pull the person out of their culture. Mm-hmm. That's just not part of the agenda. Yeah. I have never never felt like that was something that was necessary for the healing of people in the Anabaptist community that usually I would say they leave because they don't find that listening ear. They don't mm. find somebody with that compassion. And mm. so they step out to get the healing and often they're not allowed to have, have that kind of counseling while members. And so they end up, you know, leaving for that reason, yeah. but it's not that you can't heal in it because yeah. I've worked with literally hundreds of victims in my 10 years, whether online or in person, and there was a time I was doing like three to six um, clients a day, oh, wow. you know, four yeah. days a week. That's a lot of people to sit yeah. with. Yeah. So, And of all the people I worked with, very few ever left the Mennonite church. That just never was my agenda and it huh. never will be. That's uh-huh. a very per- personal story and personal journey. So yeah. um, in a nutshell, those are some key things. Care yeah. for them. Pray for them. Yeah. Don't just say, I'll pray for you say, may I pray with you, you know, enter into that and and respect their wishes, take their cues. If they say, I don't want to talk about this, then respect that and say, okay, and and you leave it. Now, a professional counselor, at least in some regions, is not allowed to pursue that later. They're not allowed to come back and say, you know, I really think we should talk about that. Um, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a counselor. I don't pretend to be. I will go back and I'll say, you know, that thing we talked about, do you want to talk about it now? No. Okay, then we'll wait. Um, may I ask you about it in the future? Take cues from them. Give them back some of the the voice that they've lost. They're they're powerless. They're helpless, mm-hmm. and or so they believe. But they're not really. So you can help them gain their voice back by asking them. Mm-hmm. Don't impose on them. Ask them. Yeah. So those are just in a nutshell some really quick sort of yeah. Um, yeah. validate their pain. You know, I'm really sorry that you've gone through this. Validate that pain. Yeah. But on, yeah. on the heels of that, don't leave them there. Tell them you're going to be okay. Yeah. And they'll probably say, how do you know? Well, at first I would just say, you know, I, I trust God. I, I'm yeah. here for you. I care about you. Now, 10 years later, I say, because I've seen it hundreds of times, mm-hmm. I've watched people heal. And that yeah. is the most incredible part of what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the typical response is more shock. So when somebody tells me the most horrible thing in the world I've ever heard, I did gasp one time. I'll be honest. I was so shocked. I gasped. But I was taught, uh, not in relation to sexual abuse, but another professional video, I was taught that this whole thing of of withholding your emotions from people uh, where they don't need that. So, for example, you're sitting with them, they're hurting, they tell you this very shocking thing. Rather than gasping, 
you keep this expression of peace, hmm. right? And you just yeah. say, you tell them you're really sorry. There's times to shed tears. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. often that's not what they need. You listen. I'm really sorry that you've gone through this. None of this shock horror. They don't need you to enter into hating their abuser. If they're really hateful towards their abuser, they don't need you to hate them too. They need you to be a voice of calm and reason and hope. That's what they're looking for. It's okay to say what he or she did to you is absolutely horrible. And I am so sorry. That is just not the heart of God. You want to validate that. Mm -hmm. But still say you are going to be okay. Mm So, um, sorry, I just had a call come in there and had to. Oh, no, that's uh, fine. I was afraid I lost you. Yeah. <laughs> no, just had to decline the call. Uh, so, um, now back on track. I'm ADHD, by the way. So, when I manage to stay on track, I'm doing really well. Okay, um, you're doing good. Trying to remember uh, where I was. Well, with speaking, I've, I've trained myself to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, when you're in that place and they're talking about their trauma, you want to give them hope. Now, I do it from a Christian perspective. Any. Mm-hmm biblical counseling I've done or any, I say any, anything that could qualify as counseling in my world would be biblical counseling. I come back to who was Jesus? Hmm. How did he hmm. live among us? And how did he offer hope in the darkest of places? And that's really what I function out of with people is that Jesus will meet you in this place. He's not afraid of your hell. He's not afraid of your pain. He's hmm. not afraid of your anger. King David is your incredible example of, I mean, he just gets mad at God. Yeah. He's basically like, you know, can you kill all my enemies? Because I'm really fed up with them. And, mm-hmm. and God just kind of seems to calmly walk through that anger with him. Mm-hmm. Um, today, if somebody said that, we kind of gasp and be like, oh, my goodness, don't talk about killing your enemy. But God can actually handle where you're at today. And he's going to meet you there. He's going to invite you to a higher place. Mm-hmm. But right now, this is where you're at. And right now is where at this place is where Jesus will meet you. So that's the hope I try to bring into their chaos. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. pretty much the opposite of all that is what people usually get. Yeah, yeah, that's that's sad. I mean, you said you mentioned how people tend to leave in your observation. People tend to leave their culture, specifically in this discussion, the conservative Anabaptist culture, because of not finding that listening ear. And I would find that to be true. There's there's a lot of hesitancy to look at the dark sides of our faith and even i mean even how would you respond to someone who feels like talking about all this is satan getting attention do do you understand my question i do yeah i do and i've heard it um i've heard all of that before it's not a biblical view um, I mean, mm. if you read your Bible, it is full of what kind of bad stories, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you go back to the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't matter. More in the Old Testament, it's a bigger book with more stories. Mm. The New Testament is um, me, the New Testament is more teaching, so we don't have as much of that kind of thing in New Testament. There's still a bit of it there, but clearly, looking at the Bible, telling bad stories is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It shows us where God is in the story. And if we can't yeah. talk about that, if we can only talk about the good, how do we even begin to invite Jesus into that trauma and and pain? I would say the opposite is true. When we are able to talk about it, we're able mm. to bring hope and Jesus and life and purpose yeah. into that darkness. Not to mention that Ephesians says that which is brought into the light is made, what, what is made manifest is made light. So what's brought into the open, what is made um, public 
is actually the thing that can be redeemed. God mm-hmm. can work with that. He can't work mm-hmm. with the hidden thing. Yeah. I mean, Achan is your perfect example of what happens when you hide things. Yeah. And it's not Achan that dies initially. Yeah. Before Achan, with his hidden sin, dies, there's a whole lot of death happens around him. And yeah. I would say I see that exact same thing playing out in our churches, mm-hmm. uh, not just the Mennonite church. Yes, that's who I work with. I work with Mennonite victims. But even you know other churches, I see the same thing. You see this church that's crumbling and you see all this devastation and there's a whole lot of you know sexual perversion going on, kids mm-hmm. being violated, rapes and stuff. And sooner or later, it's often revealed that leadership is actually hiding that kind of sin in their own life. I could tell you story after story like that. So I think to bring it out into the open is to say, we can do better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where Jesus enters into, into the story and and brings hope. You can't do that hidden and dark. Yeah. And if our goal is to live a holy life, then we have to first acknowledge our lack of holiness and our need. So true. Um, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned the boundary part of it as well because i've noticed that also that um in working with discipling anyone even if it's not a sexual abuse victim but if we just kind of give them all of ourselves then i've noticed some people tend end up pushing them away and Mm -hmm. almost not discipling them or not loving them in a way Mm -hmm. and i think that's so healthy to create boundaries um an hour and a half a week or whatever, as you mentioned. Uh, Because I think when another, I'm hearing in my ear criticism of talking about this thing. And part of it is when, like if, if somebody listening to the victim is picking up the, the judgment or the offense or taking on the, I forget how you worded it, but um, they're becoming a victim of their story. Mm-hmm. People look at that person and say, see, that's why we shouldn't be listening to these stories or we shouldn't. Um, it's all about just tearing people down or something. Mm-hmm. But having our own as someone who's not a victim or who's listening to someone, having my own inner self whole and healthy and functioning with boundaries and, mm-hmm. and really, yeah, I, I thought that was really wise to um, to discuss what. Uh, there's a thought that slipped my mind. Maybe I'll come back to it if it comes back. What would specifically when it comes to leadership? Um, obviously, the, the sad reality is that this is sometimes being done by leadership. But when they're, when it's not being done, it's done by somebody else in the church. What do victims need or what do the, the church as a whole need from leadership from the people in power um, when when this type of thing is going on? Do they, do they just need a listening ear? No, when you're getting to leadership level, you're talking a very different story. Uh, mm. For starters, there's mandated reporting in many states and provinces. Um, some places will, you know, there'll be an exclusion clause for pastors if there's a confession or whatever, stuff like that. But mm. most places that I'm aware of anyway, you're required to report to the law. And I think a great example to the victims and to the church is to say, we're actually going to do just that. Mm-hmm. We say that, you know, we want church and state to be separate. But then when it comes to crimes, we don't want the state to do its job. We tend to take, we want to take the role of the state. And that's not st- separation of church and state. Yeah. It's 
if a person acts like a criminal and functions within the kingdom of the world, behaving in criminal and abusive manners, then it is that world to which they are accountable. The Christian doesn't do life that way. Not mm. the Christian, not that the Christian never fails, but the Christian doesn't do life that way. So I, I think a good starting point is for leaders to say, now that we know about this crime happening in our church, we're going to take it to the law. That mm. doesn't mean we get to wash our hands of it because mm. that's the other extreme. It's like, okay, we've done our duty and you know, life goes on. There is a spiritual component and then there's the practical component to this. And both are really critical for the healing and well-being of both victim and offender. Mm. Uh, so to take it to the law, to let the law do its part, to cooperate with the law without interference, you know, don't try to get them off the hook because they're sorry now. That's not helpful. It doesn't do the, the victim any favors and it certainly does not do the offender any favors. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um those offenders, not all offenders, you know, function in the same way, but offenders who are narcissistic and um, gain a certain element of sort of pride or arrogance from having gotten off the hook, they're going to be mm. way more likely to re-offend mm. if they get off the hook than if they go to prison. And I will say this, Christians who go to prison, so professing Christians, Christians, whatever, um, I, I still struggle with seeing as Christian people who live out of a reprobate mind but they can repent and become Christians. Mm. Whether they're Christians at that moment or not, you know what, I leave that between them and God. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, it is not Christian behavior. Um, and so for them to go to prison, there's been different ones that I know of. And I, families of, of offenders have spoken with me about it. I won't name them, though I'd really like to, because I wish people could talk to them, <laughs> who ended up in prison and said, that's when I encountered Jesus, because for the first time in my life, I came face to face with what yeah. I was living out of. Yeah. I can tell you numerous stories like that. And I go, so why would we withhold that from an offender? Why would we say, you know, that Christians don't belong in prison? Well, you know, if you're a child molester, whether you're male or female, um, that is actually a fair punishment. And so I think mm -hmm. that's the first thing that the church needs to see, that leaders are taking a firm and clear stand to say this is a crime. And it is a sin. So on the crime level, we're going to report to the law. Mm. On the sin level, we're going to confront it before the church. Mm. The victim does not need to be named, although often the victim is known, but should not be named. Um, I've seen cases where victims were named as having to also confess because they were engaging in this sexual activity. Well, they weren't engaging in sexual activity. They were being violated. And so a clear boundary oh, wow. needs to be between that being assaulted. So they and were being accused of extramarital or premarital yes sexual, yeah. but it was actually being abused yeah. Yeah. yeah i won't go into details but one mm. young girl who was assaulted at the business place of her offender literally just came behind her and won't say what he did it was extremely violating and she made a public confession uh at church the, she was she was a teenager. She was hounded by this guilt. And so she talked um, to church leader's wife, I believe it was, about this incident. And to help her find peace, they had her confess in front of church. That doesn't bring somebody peace. That brings confusion because now mm -hmm. the thing that was found against you becomes your guilt. So there needs to be a very clear divide between who is the victim and who is the offender. Yeah. When you have two people engaging in, in um, consensual sex, that's a different story. Yeah. But when, when some guy or girl grabs some guy or girl or child or whatever, yeah. that's victimization. So there needs to be a clear boundary there. Yeah. So that sin, if, if all churches don't deal with it, same, some churches will like announce sin from the pulpit and you know bring the person before the church. I don't actually have a problem with that. I think if you're going to be molesting children, that's fair. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah. that needs to happen with those abuses. And so the, the, there's churches that will bring, you know, a young guy and a young girl, they're dating and they have sex and she gets pregnant or, or gets caught, whichever. And they have to make a confession and the whole church knows. With child molesters, that step is often skipped. Nobody finds out. I would say it, it would be more than fair to, to do that with um, offend, uh, child offenders, ch- uh, child molesters, even more so than, than consensual sex. If that's what your church does, then do it fairly and do it justly. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But then besides that, there's the walking it out with them. Meet with them. Have a pastor's wife, if it's a woman, a, a pastor. or They're not counselors. That's the other part that I really like to distinguish between counselors and pastors. Mm-hmm. Not all pastors have the gift of mm-hmm. sitting and dealing with sexual yeah. abuse. They, they, they'll do damage if they try, and they'll feel mm-hmm. compelled to because they're pastors. Find somebody in the church who can offer that spiritual support mm-hmm. and then find I mean, all licensed counselors are not equal, but they do bring something to the table that can be extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had Anabaptist friends who said, like, I help them with the spiritual part and it, walking through, and I do walk them through the forgiveness part, uh, part very carefully. And mm-hmm. with time, it's not a thou shalt forgive real quickly and move on. But to patiently walk through the forgiveness and the spiritual healing and all of that. I also talk about the trauma, but when it comes to licensed counseling some of them have told me that when they went to a licensed counselor a whole new step was healed wow. so there is the different parts that i think the church needs to recognize to say mm-hmm. we're not counselors mm-hmm. necessarily we're you know we're we're pastors and we're here to offer spiritual compassion and guidance but we need to bring somebody else in for that piece and i mean personally mm-hmm. i'd like to see churches bring in i mean get one of your own people licensed if that's what it if, if you're really that yeah. uncomfortable with licensed counselors um yeah. Have somebody in your church who's got that heart. Encourage them to become counselors and let them be paid counselors in your church. Whatever it takes the, to to stop this epidemic and bring healing to the victims, I would really encourage that. Yeah, yeah, and even to that point, um, just because we bring in a counselor or we have them go to a counselor doesn't mean, as you mentioned earlier, with the law, it doesn't mean that we've washed our hands and that we're right. we're the church is no longer being the church. Like we we are still called to be support around them and caring for them while they're mm-hmm. meeting with counselors. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I like that. What um maybe our our time is running up here soon. Just a couple quick more questions. What you mentioned earlier about seeing symptoms. Um, a friend saw symptoms in you and they reached out. Mm-hmm. Can you, do you mind sharing what that's like? That's something my wife and I have often talked about. We live here in Los Angeles and work with a lot of youth and uh, recently have been working with a young 18 year old girl who uh, came to us and told us that she was kicked out because she put her mom's boyfriend in jail for um, mm-hmm. having sex with her. And, and so this whole thing, and we've wondered it before. Um, that, was, that was actually right around the same time your first article came out, so it all like came in one bunch. But we something we've wondered is how how do you know if someone's like how can you tell beforehand before they before they come forward? Because there are often times where we sometimes wonder, but we don't want to just be reading into into things. It's actually really tough. I, I look back and I'm quite amazed that my friend noticed it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think sometimes in Anabaptist, I'm going to take a risk and say this. I think in Anabaptist communities, it's a little bit easier to tell sometimes. Um, oh, or at, okay. least, at least it was in my day because we're raised in a very, like we're raised to behave in a very specific way. We dress in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any sexualized or what could be interpreted as sexualized behavior is frowned upon. And mm-hmm. so when you see deviation from that, it's, a sign that somebody is breaking the norm and why. So it doesn't always mean they've been abused, but when you have a 13 year old, we're not talking normal crushes. We're talking, you know, that very sexualized behavior. Hmm. Uh, there's something that they're not always abuse victims, but those are some of the signs. And, and it feels almost unfair for me to be saying this publicly because, you know, there, there's definitely other things, but out in the world, um, in secular society, and even uh, Christian homes where it's like, like a lot of television exposure with sexualized behavior, mm-hmm. you're going to see a lot more of that. If you have a, a young teenager in a Christian home, a Christian church, who's picking and, and not exposed to television and all of that stuff, and you're starting to see overtly sexualized behavior, depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those things. I mean, that by all means is not everything. Obsession with body image, whether... Uh, either extreme so obsessed that it's all about you know take looking at your body and making your body just so that's Mm -hmm. a huge but so is not caring for your body so all of a sudden your teenager maybe guy or girl but especially girls you know they stop showering they stop doing the hair they start you know not caring that can be as much a symptom interesting any and and not everything that is considered you know flirty is necessarily intended as flirty so you're more outgoing child you're more bubbly, not really worried too much about what people think kind of child is going to be in a really conservative setting is going to be pegged and labeled as flirty when she's probably mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember some of the things like, I was a very outgoing kid in many ways. And, and sometimes I'd be, you know, confronted by somebody saying you shouldn't do this because it's flirty. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't. Are you, are you there? Did I lose you for that? Yeah. Lost yeah. you for a bit. Yeah, I I lost you right around you talked about you were pegged as kind of flirty. Yeah, so there was times I'd be asked about or, or confronted about a certain behavior and I just like I'll just give you an example and I still look back and it kind of makes me giggle because I it was just me. I would run up steps two to three or four at a time, like I would just fly up steps. I couldn't sit down. Yeah. Come into a room, it'd be nothing to just bounce up onto the counter and sit there. Well, I did that with youth around one time and I was approached by a gentleman saying, you know, that's not lady. Like it's very flirty. You shouldn't behave that way. Uh, And it just really shocked me. Like, how is that flirty? I'm just being me. Right. So you do have to be careful with that. So I would say, look for personality changes, Hmm. watch for that. And uh, whether it's depression or the opposite, Hmm. Um, uh, you know, trying to avoid reality through too much, activity just changes are a big thing to watch for yeah yeah so don't bulimia anorexia too like bulimia oh, okay. and anorexia. yeah so don't just go up asking somebody if they've been sexually abused if you see them being super outgoing and kind of yeah no I'm not <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and also develop a relationship before you ever ask those questions oh yeah yeah it's, it's important to have a relationship it's easy to ask a question from a distance yeah yeah no that's really good so leave it to develop a relationship or leave it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Trudy. Um, 
I have a question that I'd like to ask you. I didn't ask you if I could ask it. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. if you want to defer, that's fine. Um, but just as I know, um, for at, specifically, I've seen it with this cam situation. I don't know if you get it other times too, but um, people feel like you are, and you've alluded to it here and there in the conversation here, but that you are trying to tear down the the Mennonites or the the cam and or kind of even maybe this question is tied into why we even talk about these um horrible experiences that go on but what would you say if you if you could just to anybody that has critique of that or or sees you as being um malicious in in what you're doing okay so no, you know, it's a tough one because I understand why people feel that way. It's threatening yeah. to have somebody who is now on the outside coming back into your community and, and you know, addressing this stuff. I actually get it. So I don't, I'm not particularly offended by the assumption. Mm-hmm. Most of my friends are conservative Anabaptist. I have mm-hmm. friends that are not, but the bulk of my friends, my prayer warriors, our sponsors, they're all conservative Anabaptist. And we are talking everything from Amish to Old Order mm-hmm. to conservative Mennonite Eastern, uh, you know, it's just such a broad range of people. And I don't think about the culture part of it that much or the, you know, the Mennonite part. They're my friends and these are people I love and they've been deeply wounded. I keep Mm. in touch with, well, I was going to say hundreds, but I would say it's several thousand victims of abuse. And so, uh, and, and all of them are conservative Anabaptist. If I hated them, I, Hmm. I wouldn't fight for them. So I'm, I hate abuse. I really, yeah. really hate yeah. what abuse is doing to a culture that started out wanting to walk in truth. Yeah. That's yeah. its beginning. And I think there's many, I know, in fact, there's many, many in, in the Anabaptist community, in the Anabaptist culture who still love truth. And that is the one thing that gives me incredible hope in all of this. Hmm. Because when it comes right down to it, half truths and lies, even about the camp situation, when it's not truth, they start asking questions and they're saying, we want the truth. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people in general are interested in taking Cam down. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in taking Cam down, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in dismantling anything and anyone as far as power, not the person, but anything and anyone that is enabling and empowering and protecting abuse. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I always tell, I had a pastor tell me, you know, uh, Mennonite pastors are scared. And he was a, a conservative Anabaptist pastor. Mm-hmm. He said, Mennonite pastors are scared of you. And I said, well, if you have nothing hidden, you have nothing to fear. Yeah. If you have abuse hidden and you're enabling it, you probably should be afraid. Yeah. So yeah. because it's the abuse I'm after. It's not them. It's yeah. the abuse. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's good. And, and I just thank you for the work that you're doing and being able to care for victims and give voice to at least the need um, mm-hmm. to, to be aware not only aware of this, but to address it in our churches. Um, and I just, I, whenever I hear that, I think of, yeah, I guess my response to that is what makes us insecure about it. Because the difference, it, whether you're Mennonite or not Mennonite, is not that, like that's a theological doctrinal difference, but we're talking about a a sin issue, we're talking about crimes, we're talking about, fairly black and white, um, regardless of your theology, uh, we all agree on that. I think what's threatening is 
that as conservative Anabaptists, we, yeah, the, the movement was started for truth and a holy life and living out our faith. And obviously it has, um, as, as any movement, I think any movement has these sin issues in our closets that we'd rather not look at, rather not address. Where can people, if, if it's a pastor or just a church community in general, be something I think of, um, you had an article about a list of, of names, like putting names who've abused or, um, enabled and, and I thought the concept was good and helpful, but it did scare me. It's like, because there's a lot, there's a lot that I don't know about, um, how to go about dealing in a, in a legal or even just a, a proper, um, emotional or sociological way in a, in a church community. How do you care for victims? How do you deal with perpetrators? And, and so, um, your response to that was, you, you definitely understood that, definitely understood that fear, but that ignorance doesn't leave us off the hook, which is absolutely right. And where where can people go to begin learning? Are there resources out there learning how as a church, as leaders, just as friends, lay people, how do we care for, how do we deal with these situations when we're surprised by them? Or So there's not as many resources as I wish there was, or at least not hmm. that I've, but there are some. Uh, there's uh, the Grace website, Godly Response to Abuse. They have you know, blogs, again. Um, okay. They're good. Uh, JimmyHinton.org. I found his interviews with his mom very helpful. He, like him and his mom do these uh, conversations, these podcasts. Okay. Uh, the da dad or husband was a, a pastor and abused many kids. Mm -hmm. And so they just talk really honestly. Now they are very pro get them all behind bars, um, which oh, okay. I, I think is absolutely fair. I, I don't I don't judge them for that at all. It mm. would scare the Anabaptist community to yeah. have that so boldly stated. So I would say in light of the Anabaptist community, like with respect and um, I suppose sensitivity to the culture, there isn't a whole lot available. So even going to Jimmy uh, Hinton's um, site there, listening to the podcasts, there's a lot of truth. You don't have to agree with everything a person says. I mean, if they're blatantly anti-gospel, uh, anti-Jesus, you're going to, probably not go back but they aren't they're very biblical in their approach um mm, with some mm. different views than the anabaptist views about non-resistance mm. but the basics the the core of it is is not that far off so take what is helpful to you um i'm working on a book actually i, oh, really? I had it okay. almost had it almost finished before i started university in 2016 okay. and then i decided to kind of do the school thing first and see you know what new things i learn and, and how mm. that might be helpful so it's sitting like literally a couple of thousand words from being finished and it's been there for three years, but I've oh, called wow. it um, that the working title is understanding uh, victims of sexual abuse in religious communities. And okay. it is very much written from the Anabaptist perspective and my learning from within. Um, wow. I'm hoping to finish that, uh, it, you know, in the next year because yeah. I'm still in university. It's a little bit hard to uh, get at it, but yeah. uh, I do hope to get that out there. I do think it'd be a very um, helpful resource for, for pastors and churches. Yeah. I try sensitive to the culture and yet bluntly talk about what this sexual abuse actually does yeah. to the victims and to the church. So, um, yeah. and I, I, yeah, I don't have a, I need to create a resources webpage and just invite people to send in what they have. Hmm. Um, hmm. I don't have that at present, but I'm going to create a page on generations unleashed for that. Okay. 
so that people, you know, even the Anabaptist community that has resources, send them to me and I'll post them. Yeah. So yeah. you have a, you've already written a book you mentioned earlier. Um, I already, the title slipping my mind. Between? Between Two Gods. Between Two Gods. Yeah. And you're working on a second one that we we'll look forward to that. Your website is Generations Unleashed or dot com. Dot com. Yep. Okay. And then you also have a blog too, right? Is that separate I from? Do. Okay. It is. Yeah. That's yeah. Splash for Ripples. Splash for Ripples dot yeah. com. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Trudy, for coming on and sharing your story, sharing with us as we seek to. My, my hope, my prayer is that this can just facilitate ongoing conversation and, mm -hmm. and de-escalate the, the emotions behind it too, because it, it is, um, it's very emotional on, on many different mm -hmm. levels. It's emotional for victims. It's emotional yeah. for offenders and it's emotional for all of us who are shocked, surprised by this kind of activity. Um, but thank you for being a part of getting the conversation going and may God continue to bless your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and God bless you too. Yes.